Hello friends, great to be with you again. We are in the third week now of our series on the mechanics of the gospel. And I'll just remind you that we're doing this because the gospel is the best and the most important news in the whole world. And we need to make sure that as a church, as God's people, we are not only knowing the gospel, but we are immersed in the gospel. Uh, there's a pastor named J.D. Greer who put it this way. He said, the gospel is not just the diving board you jump off of into the pool of Christianity. He says, the gospel is the pool itself. It's the thing that we're to be living in, swimming in, immersed in, living and breathing it. And if we're going to take things up a notch in our personal walks of faith as God's people, we need to know the gospel and be grounded and rooted in the gospel. If we're going to take things up a notch or several as a church, we need to be a people who are grounded and rooted in the gospel. And so to recap, we've broken the gospel down into seven elements in this series. And here's your time for your weekly review. Uh, these are the building blocks here on the screen. There is one God by whom and for whom all things exist. We have separated ourselves from God by our sin. God has provided a solution to our sin in Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. We are saved by accepting Jesus' sacrifice and repenting of our sin. We are called to follow Jesus with our whole lives. And if we're saved, we will spend eternity with God. That's the gospel that we see in Scripture. And so far, we've looked at these first two. We've talked about how we were made by God and for God to bear His image, reflect His glory, to be in relationship with Him and love Him and serve Him and be close to Him and worship Him. And last week we talked about sin, how we've all sinned and separated ourselves from God. And in so doing, we've subjected ourselves to death and condemnation and wrath. That's where we've been. And today we're covering off this third element, that God has provided a solution to our sin in Jesus Christ. So what I want to do to kind of get us started, we've got lots of ground to cover today. I want to talk about uh, the concept of deliverance. And this will be a little bit of an overlap to connect us to last week. Um, sin is a huge, huge problem. It affects and it infects every single one of us. I like to say it this way. We're all in the same boat and that boat is going down. Sin is the reason why the world is so messed up. Sin is the reason why bad things happen. Sin is the reason why people are subject to pain and sickness and suffering and death. And sin, like David talked about last week, sin leads to the wrath of God. You remember he said that God can't just overlook sin or turn you know, the blind eye to it. It's that offensive to God. It's that serious. It must be paid for. It must be dealt with. And we end up paying for our sin with our very lives. It says the wages of sin is death. And one of the worst parts about sin is that most people don't realize or maybe don't want to acknowledge that it's even a problem for them. They think, I'm pretty good. I'm not that sinful. There's people worse than me. I don't need to be saved. But in reality, friends, without help, without our situation somehow being changed, we are doing poorly now and we are headed for a whole lot worse on our own. But here's what you need to know. This is so vitally important. God wants people to be saved. It says, I think it's in 1st or 2nd Peter, it says, God does not want anyone to perish, but he, he wants all to come to repentance. And in speaking of that, the fact that God wants everybody to be saved, I just want you to understand, this has less to do with how amazing we are. It's, it's not a case of, 
Look how awesome I am. God would be a fool to not save me and not want me. That's not really how it goes because remember, we have sinned and by our sin, we render ourselves uh, not useful and broken and, and unsuitable for our intended purpose, which is to be near God and to worship Him. When we think about how God wants to save people, this speaks to how amazing He is. When God looks upon us, humanity, in our sinful and broken state, rather than just saying, well, you made your bed and now you can lie in it, he is moved in his heart with compassion for us. And, and this, I mean, we could plumb the depths of this like all day long and then some, but this just speaks of the incredible, rich, deep love that God has for us. He has that for you. God wants all people to be saved. But what you have to understand, friends, is this. This salvation is specific. This deliverance is not like the build-your-own variety. God doesn't provide many options or many paths for salvation. He provides one. And we believe that Jesus Christ is the means by which God deals with our sin problem. We believe that Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation. God doesn't tell us to look within ourselves, right? He doesn't say uh, salvation just comes as, as long as you can look within yourself and find the good person that's in there. No, salvation comes from a source external to us. We cannot save ourselves. God also doesn't give us some checklist so we can prove that we've done enough. He doesn't give us a morality test to show that we're good enough. He doesn't give us an IQ test to show that we're smart enough, thankfully. He gives us himself. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the promised Savior. He is the answer to sin. And today, I want us to spend some time looking at how we know Jesus is the one. Jesus is God's promised deliverer from sin. And if we're going to understand who God is and what God has done, we need to turn to what God said. So we're going to be spending some time going through the Scriptures today. And I have to just kind of chuckle because last week, David lovingly reassured you that, hey, we're not going to be just taking some slow crawl through the Bible and you'll wonder if you're going to make it. And then I roll in this week and guess what we're doing? We're literally going through the entire Old Testament and then some of the new. But we're going to do it quickly, so buckle up. What I want to start out by doing is talking about how all of the signs point to Jesus. And we're going to pick up the story right where we left off last week. Remember, that's where the sin entered the world. Right at that exact moment is where we start to see God unfolding His plan for deliverance. And I want you to understand, it's not like He had to go away and think about it for a while. It's in that moment. As soon as we sinned, God had an answer for it. So as we take a meandering look through the Scriptures here, uh, you're going to see various promises, hints, clues, foreshadowing uh, of deliverance from, from sin, from God and the one who it's going to be coming through, Jesus Christ. So let's start in Genesis 3. That's where we were last week. And that's, again, where Adam and Eve sinned. Sin entered the world. Satan was present, and he was influencing and involved in that situation. And then God shows up, and he starts giving everybody the word. And he's given Satan the word. And he says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Some translations say that he will crush your head. 
And that is foreshadowing. That is prophecy. That is pointing ahead to the one who will ultimately come and deal with Satan and sin and crush it under his feet. That's Jesus. We were, uh, another one from Genesis 3, again, which we read this last week. Remember that we read that God took animal skins and he clothed Adam and Eve with these skins. Now, he did this because they were, in, uh, they were exposed and they were in open shame. And God provided a covering for their shame. And I would just submit to you, I'm not an expert in this, but I would presume you can't get an animal skin without killing the animal. I think that's generally how it works. So what I want you to notice is that an animal had to die, blood had to be spilled for their sin and their shame to be covered over. This is pointing ahead to something that's coming. And we're going to talk about this more as we go on. Let's move ahead to Genesis 8 and 9. This is where we read about God sending the great flood to cover the earth in judgment for sin. But he spares Noah and his family and he keeps them alive inside the giant ark. And when the waters go down, Noah goes out and he, if you read what it says in there, he goes out and he offers a sacrifice to the Lord. And as a result, God makes a covenant with him and he promises to show him mercy. So what I want you to see is that God's mercy is revealed in light of sacrifice. In other words, a sacrifice is offered and through it, God extends mercy. Might ring a bell. We're going to skip, like I say, we're skipping right along, skipping all kinds of characters and events, things we could talk about. We're going to move on later in Genesis. We're reading of a guy named Joseph. Joseph if you remember his story, he was treated shamefully at the hands of his brothers. He was shipped off to a foreign land, Egypt. And while he was in Egypt, uh, he was wrongfully accused and imprisoned. But God uh, showed providence in his life. And, and through the Lord's intervention, Joseph was able to go before the entire nation and cause them to be spared from a famine that was coming. Now, I would submit this to you. Jesus came as the greater Joseph. Jesus is one who was wrongfully accused. He was poorly treated. Uh, he was sentenced to death. But through his sacrifice, he is able to go before all mankind and spare those who would believe in him from the coming wrath. Jesus is the greater Joseph. We move on to the early chapters of Exodus. And this is where we see God's people in bondage and slavery and they're unable to break themselves free and they're in a hopeless situation. But God shows up and intervenes and he promises to set them free. This is just on a high level. The big picture here is that we are all slaves and, and in bondage to sin. We are unable to break ourselves free. We are in a hopeless situation. But God shows up and he promises a way that that can be changed and remedied, that we can be delivered. Looking specifically in Exodus, if you read in Exodus 12, this is where the first Passover was instituted. And this is where the angel of death was making its rounds through town. And God had his people paint the doorposts of their homes in, in the blood of a lamb. And the idea was that when the angel of death came through, he would see the blood of the lamb covering that house and death would pass over them. This is definitely something that points to Christ because he is the perfect lamb of God and death comes for us all. But for those who are covered, listen, by the blood of the lamb, for those people, death passes over them. It's right there. 
We also read further, uh, we read of a guy, Moses. Moses was a huge figure in the Old Testament. He led God's people out of slavery. He guided them through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And he, he interceded between God and the people and spoke to God on their behalf. He was their mediator. Well, Jesus comes as the greater Moses. Uh, Jesus leads people out of slavery to sin. He leads and guides believers through life, sort of on our journey to the promised land, if you will. He is the mediator between us and God. He intercedes to God on our behalf. He's the greater Moses. In Exodus 25, we see the institution of the tabernacle. It was basically a big tent, excuse me, where God's presence would come and dwell on the earth because God wants to be with his people, right? And this points to Christ because in him, the presence of God comes to dwell on the earth. It says in John 1 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word is Jesus. And that word dwelt can also be interpreted as tabernacled. It's like Jesus is ultimately the greater tabernacle. He is now the presence of God on the earth. In Leviticus, we see the sacrificial system laid out in detail. So the way that God, at least temporarily, set things up is that in order for people's sins to be dealt with, the word that's used a lot is atoned for, dealt with, paid for, an animal had to be sacrificed, blood had to be shed, life for life, and it had to be an unblemished animal, it had to be without any spot or defect, and it was common for lambs and other animals to be used in this. And this points ahead to Jesus because he was the perfect unblemished, spotless sacrifice. His blood was shed. Uh, his life was given for our life. And he's also called straight up in John 1 the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And furthermore, not, not only does Jesus uh, serve as sort of a representation or a, uh, another way of looking at the sacrificial system, he actually fulfills the sacrificial system. You might remember that on the cross, he cried out in a loud voice, it is finished. So his sacrifice was ultimate. He fulfilled the sacrificial system. We also see in the early books of Scripture uh, the, the institution of the priesthood. So again, the, what was going on is the Israelites, God's people, they had this problem where they were sinful, but God was holy, and so they couldn't just do this, right? It, it, it didn't work uh, that simply. So to that end, since God wants to be with his people and dwell among them, the way he chose to set things up is to uh, appoint someone, a priest, to serve as a mediator between God and the people, sort of that connecting point between heaven and earth. And the priest would stand in the gap for the people and he would make atonement for their sins by those animal sacrifices. And this points to Jesus, who comes, as it says in Hebrews, the great high priest, his sacrifice made him the mediator between the holy God and sinful people. Now he is our mediator. He is the way we have access to God. We don't go to the priest. We don't go to the tabernacle or the temple. We come to Jesus. And his sacrifice made atonement for all of mankind. His, his death on the cross saw the shedding of blood for the payment of sin. Jesus is the great high priest. Moving on into the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, in Deuteronomy 21, there's an account where the Israelites are wandering through the desert and the people sin. That's absolutely nothing new. It happened all the time. But this time, because of their sin, what it says is that fiery serpents came in and they were biting people and people were dying. So God says to Moses, 
make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. And this, again, is a parallel to Jesus, because just as the Israelites had been bitten, so we are, it's a little cheesy, but it's true, we are bitten and affected by sin. And this snake, in this account, the snake would be lifted up on a pole. Jesus was lifted up on a pole, right? The cross. And whoever looked at the snake would live. Well, whoever looks to the sacrifice of Jesus will live. This is something that points ahead to Jesus. We move on to the book of Ruth. If you remember the story of Ruth, it's a great little book. Ruth was a widow. She was from a despised people. She was in a pretty hopeless and helpless situation. But this guy Boaz comes along and he shows incredible grace and favor to Ruth. And he serves as, it's, it's called a kinsman redeemer. He essentially brings her out of that situation she's in. She's redeemed. She's delivered from it. And we, friends, in our lives without Christ are in a hopeless situation. And we're helpless and we can't do anything. And things aren't looking so good for us, but God shows incredible grace to us in Christ. And he himself serves as our redeemer. He delivers us from that state we were in. Then we move on to books like 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, where we see the Israelite kingly system set up. And this is to point us to Jesus because when we consider him, he's the king of all kings. Jesus is the greater king. And the Israelite kingly system was especially cemented in the rule of King David. Well, Jesus comes as the greater David. First of all, it's kind of neat. He actually was born in the family line of David. But where David ushered in a new era for the kingdom of Israel, right? He made them a mighty power on the earth. Jesus comes and he ushers in the new reality of the kingdom of God, of which we are a part as believers. Now, the kings, most of them were pretty much terrible. So God sent in other people called the prophets, to point the people back to God and say, hey, this isn't how it's supposed to be. Turn to God. Repent from your sin. And Jesus comes as the greater prophet because he points people to the kingdom of God and repentance through faith in him. Now, the people didn't often listen to the prophets and things kept getting worse. And so eventually the Israelites were sent into exile as, part of, uh, as an act of judgment for their sin. But again, right from the start, as soon as God ordains this to happen. He says, I'm going to bring you guys out. I'm going to deliver you from this. And, and again, this is symbolic of the fact that God, through Christ, brings us home from our spiritual exile. At the end of that exile, you read books like Ezra and Nehemiah, and they talk about the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the holy city, and God's temple, and all this. This prefigures the building of God's house, the church, which is accomplished as a result of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, and it happens under the headship of Jesus. He is the head of his body, the church. Then we get to a book like the Psalms. And we can't overlook the Psalms. They express the heights and the depths of the human experience in relation to and response to God. Well, Jesus comes along, he's fully God and fully man, and he lives through the very same heights and depths of the human experience that we do, yet he does so without sin. 
Now, there are also many references right in the Psalms that specifically point ahead to Jesus. Here's a few of them. Psalm 1610 says, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. That was written a thousand years before Jesus was born, and it comes to pass with him. Though Jesus was dead in the grave, he was not left there and abandoned. God raised him from the dead. In Psalm 22, there's a few of them in that one psalm. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cried that out while he was on the cross. It says in Psalm 22 as well, They pierced my hands and my feet. It says, They cast lots for my clothing and divided my garments among them. If you know the story, all of that happened in and around the event of Jesus' crucifixion. You get to books like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. These are referred to as wisdom literature. And in places later in Scripture, like 1 Corinthians 1.30 and Colossians 2.3, Jesus himself is called the wisdom of God. So when you read your Proverbs, when you read your Ecclesiastes, it points ahead to the one who is the fulfillment and the embodiment of wisdom, Jesus Christ. Then we get to a book like Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is sometimes called the fifth gospel because there's so much Jesus in it. Uh, and, and I would point out to you, it was written 700 years before he was born. Uh, Isaiah 7.14 is a prophecy that says, The virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Uh, Isaiah 9.6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Then there's places like Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. They talk about the Lord's suffering servant. Listen to some of these. 53 verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent... So he opened not his mouth. And verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. If you read the story of Jesus, all of this is fulfilled in his work on and around the cross. Daniel chapter 3. I hope you guys are hanging in. Daniel 3. This is where, if you know Veggie Tales, this is where Rackshack and Benny were thrown into the fiery furnace. And you remember how the story goes. They're in there and the guard opens up and looks in and he says, We only threw three people in, but there's four figures in there. There's four people in there. And remember what he says, the fourth looks like a son of man. Well, Jesus comes onto the scene and he identifies himself regularly as the son of man. And actually, a lot of people believe that that fourth figure that was in the furnace with those guys was actually Jesus himself. And this is called a Christophany. There's your word of the day, Christophany. This is where Jesus appears For instance, in the Old Testament, before he was actually born of Mary, there's a lot of possible Christophanies in the Old Testament. I'd love to go on a tangent and talk about those, but we'll do that another week. Anyway, 
Uh, the prophet Jonah prefigures Christ. You remember his story? That's another good Veggie Tales movie. They could probably explain a lot of this. Anyway, Jonah, you remember his deal? He's commissioned by God to go and preach repentance to a great city. And he says, no, thank you. And he runs the other way. And while he's on that journey, he gets swallowed up by a giant fish. And he's in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And eventually the fish spits him back out onto dry land. And then he gets the hint and he goes and preaches repentance to this great city of Nineveh. And a whole bunch of them uh, turn away. They repent. This points to how Jesus, just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish, uh, Jesus was in the belly of the earth. He was in the grave. And just like Jonah was spat out by the fish, Jesus was spat back out of the grave. It couldn't hold on to him. And by his evasion of the grave, a great multitude is saved. Uh, Micah 5.2. Micah was written 700 years before Jesus was born. And it says in Micah 5.2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. You remember, of course, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem 700 years later. You get to the book of Zechariah, 500 years before Christ was born. And there's a few references there that point to Jesus. Zechariah 3.8 talks about the branch. That's the Lord's servant. That's a Messiah reference. And Jesus comes as that Messiah. Zechariah 9.9 talks about a king riding in on the colt of a donkey. And we read this at Easter time. When Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he's riding on the colt of a donkey. Uh, Zechariah 11.12 has a reference. It says something along the lines of 30 pieces of silver is the price they put on me. Jesus was betrayed by Judas Iscariot for 30 pieces of silver. And finally, Malachi 3.1. It talks about uh, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. That was 400 years before Jesus was born. And that was pointing ahead to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist's entire ministry, the whole point of it was to pave the road because Jesus was coming right behind him. Okay, so there's that list there. That's just the Old Testament. This is all stuff that happened before Jesus was even born. And would you believe that's only a small fraction of them? I have a study Bible that literally has 20 or 30 pages full of references of things that point ahead or are fulfilled in Christ. It's It's a massive subject. And I understand, guys, listen, I understand you're not going to necessarily go to this level of detail when you're, say, sharing the gospel with a friend. But I just need you to know and understand, this is not just some coincidence. This is not some accident. Jesus didn't just walk down the street with resume in hand and wander into a random storefront and say, I'll take the job. This was planned, meditated, calculated hundreds of years before Jesus came onto the scene. You need to know that. This is not an accident. All the signs point to Jesus. Now, we have looked at some of the Old Testament promises, prophecies, predictions. We need to now look at some of the things that are in the New Testament. We need to talk about how Jesus' identity was verified. Because all these things are well and good. But they aren't overly helpful unless we know that they actually have been verified. I'll give you an illustration. Sometimes in life you have to call into, say, the credit card company or your internet provider 
what do you got to ask a question or whatever you need to do. And every single time you call them, what do they have to do? They have to verify your identity. They say, can I please have your name and date of birth? And they have to do this because otherwise I could be some wingnut coming on there pretending to be you and I could get into all your internet records, I could get into all your credit card details and you don't want that. So similarly, it's necessary for us to see that Jesus is verified to be God's chosen savior, the one he promised for years and years and years. Otherwise, some Yahoo could come along and say that he or she is the one when they're really not. And actually this has happened a lot in history. I, I kid you not, there is literally a Wikipedia article that is titled List of Messiah Claimants, people who claim to be the Messiah. And there's at least 35 of them on there. And you know what? Not one of them verified that claim with anything of substance. In fact, most of them were criminals of some sort. But Jesus, on the other hand, he verified through much of his life that he was the one so consider, for instance, his birth. We read a few scriptures that talked about his birth, and the prophecies included things like he's going to be born of a virgin, he's going to be in the family line of David, and he's going to be born in the town of Bethlehem. Jesus comes along and check, 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 he's all of those things. Okay? Uh, something like his baptism. For instance, we read in Matthew 3.16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And it gives evidence in other places that there were people around who were witnessing that. And I'm just picturing being there going like, okay, this seems like a pretty good sign that this is legitimate. How about his sinlessness? Jesus lived his whole life without sin. That is something I assure you I have not done and you probably have not done. 1 Peter 2.22 says, He, Jesus, committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. And 1 John 3.5 says, You know he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And friends, that in and of itself is very telling because if Jesus had sinned in any way, he would not have made an acceptable sacrifice for sin. Remember, you need an unblemished, perfect, spotless sacrifice. That's what Jesus was. He was without sin. Then we consider his works of power. Jesus did all kinds of things during his life and ministry that, frankly, only God can do. It can only be done from, with power from on high. Jesus, for instance, cured people's physical ailments. He, he, he blindness, leprosy, paralysis, more. He cast demons out of people. He exercised control over nature, right? He, he walked on water. He calmed the winds of the storm. He did other things like feed several thousand people with five loaves of bread and two fish. I, that would scarcely feed me for one meal. Wink, wink. Uh, he's even recorded to have raised people from the dead, like his friend Lazarus in John 11. These are things that only God can do. I can't do these things. You can't do these things. This is the power of God at work. Speaking of which, what about Jesus claims to be God? It sort of baffles me. There are some who claim that Jesus never actually said he was God. 
And I'm saying that is, that is malarkey. That's baloney. It's very clear that he did. I'll give you just a few examples. In Mark 2, 7, Jesus claims that he has the authority to forgive sins on the earth. And if you remember that, the people who were around thought, that's weird. I thought only God could forgive sins. No, that's right. In Mark 14, 62, this one, I don't know how we missed this one. He actually just claims it straight up. The religious leaders ask him, are you the Christ? And he says, yes. So I don't know if we just omit that one or not. But anyway, Jesus also in, in various other places made uh, several I am statements. And the, the sort of story behind that is that in Exodus 3, God is meeting with Moses. That's the burning bush thing. And God gives him an assignment. And Moses says, okay, but when I go and tell people what you've told me, who do I say sent me? And he says, tell them I am who I am. So when Jesus comes along and he starts saying, I am, I am, I am, the people around it, they knew what he was saying. One of them is John 8, 58. He says, before Abraham was, I am. That's not a grammatical uh, misprint. That's Jesus making a claim to be God. There's a ton more of them too, but he said he was God. What about his resurrection from the grave? I won't go long on that one because Jeff is going to preach on that next week. But at any rate, Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins. And he rose from the grave on the third day. This is the ultimate proof that he is who he said he was. The last one I want to bring up is in reference to manuscripts. You might be hearing all this and you might say, well, Braden, all these things are great. They're well and good. I know the Bible says this, but how do I know the Bible is actually true and accurate? And I say, that's a fantastic question. And we don't really have time to do a very much of a deep dive on that today. But uh, let me give you a brief couple of figures pertaining to manuscripts. Manuscripts are ancient handwritten documents. And they have either been preserved over the years or discovered over the years. And they are used to verify and validate claims. So generally, I'm, I'm generalizing here, the more legitimate proven manuscripts there are, and they can, the archaeologists, the science people, they can tell, like, this is when this was written. Uh, the more legitimate manuscripts there are, the more likely it is that something happened or that something was recorded correctly, that it's a legitimate source. So here's some figures for you. Need a drink first. Homer, uh, he wrote in the 8th or 9th century BC, he wrote things like the Iliad, the Odyssey, we have around 1,800 manuscripts from Homer, and that's a pretty large number. That's large enough uh, for, for the experts to generally accept that the stuff he wrote uh, is legit, and this is it. Sophocles, he wrote in the 5th century BC. We have about 200 manuscripts from Sophocles. Herodotus, he's called the father of history, and we have about 110 manuscripts from Herodotus. Thucydides, definitely the most fun name to say of this list. Thucydides wrote the history of the Peloponnesian War, 5th century BC. We have eight manuscripts from Thucydides. Uh, the philosopher Plato, we have about 210 manuscripts from Plato. And all of these numbers are big enough for the experts to feel pretty confident about them. What I want to tell you is that there are over 5,000 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. And many of them were written right around the time the stuff recorded in them actually took place. And... 
My point on the manuscripts is that all of the stuff that we're claiming about Jesus is recorded in a substantial body of work. It was written right around the time of Jesus' life and death and burial and resurrection. There were eyewitnesses to him that were influencing and or writing some of this stuff. There were people who experienced the whole thing. So when we consider all this, I'm zooming out now, when we consider all of these things, all the prophecies from the Old Testament, how it was all verified in the New Testament, it becomes clear that Jesus is the one. Jesus is God's promised Savior. He is the deliverer. He is God's answer to sin. And what I want to do as we close up today, we're going to close up shop here. I want to just talk for a minute about what do we do now? What do we do with this? When we encounter God's word, and when we encounter God in his word, uh, there's always a response. And my encouragement to you today, wherever you're approaching this from, my encouragement to you today is to look to Jesus and cling to Jesus. He is the one that we have to look to for our salvation. He is the one through whom our sins are forgiven. He is the one through whom our new life in relationship with God is enacted and realized. He is the one we are called to walk with and follow after. And if you are watching this or listening to this and you are not a Christian yet, like I said, I want you to look to Jesus and cling to Jesus. This is the place you need to be looking. This is where your deliverance is going to come from. It doesn't come through the culture. It doesn't come through your morality. It doesn't come through your self-actualization. It doesn't come through you living out your own truth. It comes from Jesus and only Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever, whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And he says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you are not a Christian, you need to trust in Jesus for your salvation. He loves you. He has good for you. And through his sacrifice on the cross, he wants to save you. So I would encourage you, when this video is over, we're going to have the contact info for the church on the screen. And if you have questions or comments or things you need to work through, or maybe you're ready to say yes to Jesus today, go ahead and reach out. I would love to talk to you about this. Now... If you are a Christian, which probably most of us watching this or listening to this are, my, my encouragement is the same to you with a little bit of a different application. I want you to look to Jesus and cling to Jesus. I would ask you today, friends, and I love you, so I will ask you, are you walking with Jesus today? Are you seeking Jesus? Are you serving Jesus? Are you trusting Jesus? Are you loving Jesus? Are you worshiping Jesus? You can tell, even just from this today, he is not some peripheral figure. He is not some accessory that you add on to your life. He is not the genie in the bottle or your therapist. Jesus is the center. 
Are you walking with him? What do you need to do to put Jesus first today? He loves you. He has good for you. And our lives flourish when we put him in the center. What do you need to do to live your life more in line with who he is and in light of who he is? He is Lord. He is worthy. He is calling us to trust him and follow him with all of our lives, my friends. This is the calling to which we've been called, and it is the best life we could possibly live. I want to just pray for us as we close. So wherever you're at, why don't you just bow with me and we'll go to the Lord together. Lord, we're thankful today for who you are. And Jesus, we want to just pause and acknowledge that you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. You are the sacrifice that was made for our sins, for my sins. You are the one who died in my place. You are the one who has prepared a place for us who believe. You are the one who is coming back again to bring this age to a close and to bring all of those who love you to go and to be with you. Jesus, it is you. You are God. We worship you today. Help us, Lord, to see how central you are to the message of the gospel. Without you, there literally is no gospel, Lord Jesus. Without you, there literally is no hope. There is no peace. There is no joy. There is no relationship with God. There is no forgiveness of sins. Help us to see you in your rightful place, Lord. I want to pray for those who are watching or listening, Lord, who don't know you yet. And I'm praying that, Holy Spirit, you would stir in and around them, God, and cause them to desire you, cause them to realize their need for you, God, cause them to realize that the only way they can be saved, the only way they can live the life they were designed to live is through Christ. And God, I'm praying for courage to reach out and pipe up and and say so if they have questions or if they're ready to talk to someone about uh, coming to you, Lord. I want to pray for my brothers and sisters who are in Christ, God, and I'm thankful for each one. I'm praying for a a new strength and a new joy and a new peace and a new sense of purpose and understanding, God, based on who Jesus is. God, I'm praying that you would strengthen us to the degree that we don't want to live our lives for ourselves and in our own power, but for you and in your strength that you supply. Lord, we love you, we worship you, and we give you all the thanks and all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for watching. Stick around for next week. Thanks for watching.